Warning, this episode contains racist and explicit language. It was a Saturday morning. Forget the month, but it wasn't cold, it wasn't real hot. It's summer, 1990. Larry Washington is a dispatcher at Maplewood Police Department. Michael Morrison is a rookie officer. Yes, it was my first day of work, and me and my, the gentleman I got hired with, Jose Rodriguez, we were qualifying with our weapons. And so after we finished qualifying with our weapons, we walked to the center of town to the diner to get something to eat. Meanwhile, the phone on Larry's desk starts to ring. And there's a woman on the phone who's clearly Caucasian saying that she believes that there was a black guy impersonating a police officer in Maplewood's village. Then the woman had a bright idea. She said, Would you like us to go out and hold him until the cops get there? A citizen's arrest. Larry asks if she's sure about what she's seen. And she's like, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I know Maple would never hire a black cop. And that was the tell. This guy impersonating a police officer was in exactly the same location as Mike Morrison. In fact, the man supposedly impersonating a police officer was Mike Morrison. Officer Mike Morrison. And it was only his first day on the job. As for the idea of a citizen's arrest... Uh, Mikey at the time was very into bodybuilding and he was already a black belt. (laughs) I suggested that, no ma'am, you might not want to do that. And somewhere in that communicating with her, she must have got the idea that I was also black and terminated the phone call. Mike and Larry had both made it out of Black Newark and had crossed the border into Maplewood. They would become brothers in blue in this very white, all-American town next door. And this episode is all about their fight to survive. From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode 3, Sins of the Fathers. If it's a wonder that Mike Morrison became a cop, it's a miracle that Larry Washington ever did. We're going to go back in time for a minute, back to July 1967. Larry is four years old, living in Newark. A black cab driver called John Smith was brutally beaten by two white police officers for a minor traffic offence. The uprising that followed is being violently suppressed by the National Guard, and Larry's world has become a war zone. So at that time, with the looting, and we weren't far from it. We were less than half a mile from the area that people were looting and rioting in. What Larry could hear was pandemonium. I recall my father basically setting me, my mother, and my two brothers and sisters in a bathroom, in a tub. Sat us in the tub, told us not to come out of the bathroom until he came back. He closed the door with a shotgun in his hand. We could hear National Guardsmen shooting rifles. We, we heard the trucks and we could hear the commotion going on. We couldn't see it, but we could absolutely hear it. And we sat in that tub and stayed in that bathroom 
what seems to be hours. It seemed like days to me, but hours and hours until he came back and said, okay, you guys can come out. Like Mike Morrison, Larry was also born and bred in Newark, but their experiences of the city aren't the same. In the projects, um, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money, but we made it work. While Mike was spending his time with the kids on the block in Leslie Street, Larry was already seeing the darker side of human nature. I can't even begin to explain to you project life. You see a lot of things as a kid in project life in the city of Newark. You see robbing, stabbings, killings, shootings, um, people thrown off the roof back in the 60s before they put like gates and locked doors to get to the roofs of the buildings. You see drug overdose, lots of drug use, unfortunately, prostitution. Uh, you get, as a kid in a project in the city of Newark at the time, you get the whole realm of life. And on top of all that, there was another ever-present threat, the Newark Police Department, the largest law enforcement agency in the state. And after the violence and chaos of the uprising, they continued to police the black residents brutally. And to be frank, there were no consequences. As a little kid, I was downtown with my mother once, and I literally watched a, a white police officer just punch this black guy right in the face. He punched this guy in the face because he was standing in a spot that the police wanted, the cop wanted to stand in. Police back in the 60s in Newark, racist, did, you know, suck dogs on people, you know, beat, beat black men and black women, just mistreated us. The black residents in Larry's projects had had enough. They were done with the abuse and the disrespect. Being policed by the Newark Police Department wasn't working, so they took matters into their own hands. They made their own communities with their own systems and their own laws. And the ones who upheld these new laws, they were called the fathers. In our project development, the police weren't really welcome. That's why um, they decided that if anybody's gonna patrol our project development, it would be the fathers of the building. The fathers were their very own police force, serving, protecting, and holding to account the residents of the projects. And their stance was clear. There was no reason for the police to come in here to mistreat anyone. Um, if anyone did any wrongdoings within the building, it was dealt with within the, you know, the fathers of the building. Now the fathers, they didn't mess around. I can recall, um, Someone did something and ran into our building and the police were basically on this guy's heels. And we're looking out the window and like, the police just stopped shy of running into the building. Like they knew that, okay, we don't cross this line. This new established boundary was known by the people of the projects and the police. Dare to cross the line and you're in the father's territory. They stopped chasing the guy, he ran into the building. The fathers-to-be handled the guy and more or less told the police that we wouldn't help them do anything with this guy because of the mistreatment from the Newark Police Department towards blacks at the time. Interesting times, very interesting times. The message was loud and clear. Black and white, us versus them. As far as the police, the police were not welcomed into the projects. To say there weren't any black role models in law enforcement is something of an understatement. I just know that in the projects, you, you never thought of becoming a police officer. 
I didn't see a black police officer, wow, until um, I probably got into high school. So back in the project, no. There was no desire to do policing. Police were bad people, as far as we were concerned, from their actions towards us. So how did Larry, who knew the hostility his community felt towards the police, end up on the other side, dressed in blue? How did he become one of them? At first, it wasn't intentional. By the time he graduated high school, Larry describes himself as a loose cannon, a kid still trying to figure out where to go and what to do next. College wasn't really his thing. I actually um, connected with a contractor and was doing, you know, little contract work, putting in windows, whatever the case may be. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out and I needed to do something with my life. By the mid-80s, Larry had enrolled into the U.S. Army, where he split his time between Colorado and Germany. It was nearing the end of the Cold War, so there were a lot of American troops still posted in Europe. When his time in the army was up, it was 1987. Larry was just 24. But like all veterans, the questions started to rise. What next? What does the rest of my life look like? What are they going to do? What are you going to do for a career? We're getting older. We, you know, we're going to want our own families. And how do we want to make a living? You know, and clearly working in retail and, 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 and construction, things like that. You know, no one really wanted that. We wanted careers. We didn't want a job. Now, it's pretty normal for people who go and work for the U.S. Army to transition into law enforcement. Growing up in Newark, that was never on the cards. But that time away from home, serving his country in Europe, that had completely changed his mindset. And policing one was a career, you know, with a start date. And you could retire in 25 years and collect a pension and um, do things to help out the community, get along or make better relations with the police department. And that last point was crucial. Larry felt the need to make things better between Black communities and the police. He wanted to make things right. Policing was something I thought of in the military and thought, wow, if I could do anything to make community and policing closer, that's what I wanted to do. So when the opportunity to become a dispatcher at Maplewood PD came knocking, it was a means to an end, an entry-level job in a nice neighbourhood and a way of getting closer to being a cop. Being a dispatcher is an office job, but it's also a frontline job and you're a direct point of contact between the public and police. Your job is to answer the phone and record any information around a report that's coming in. And being a dispatcher was where Larry's love for policing really kicked in. You get to know these police officers because you're basically taking information on the phones, giving out to these guys, and, you know, they're coming in, you interact with these police officers, and you oh, God, I can certainly do this for the rest of my life. Larry had made up his mind. I just knew that, you know, once I got in as a dispatcher and listening to the everyday dealings of police officers and what and how they go about when they're working, uh, I just knew I needed to be a part of that. So Larry made it his goal to eventually move on from his job as a dispatcher and become a fully-fledged cop. I just felt strongly that I could make a difference out there on the streets better than I can sit behind this microphone. We're talking 1990 here. Larry and Mike were both working at Maplewood PD. Larry a dispatcher, Mike as a cop. 
They were the only dark-skinned men on a force of 50, policing a very white neighborhood. And the calls Larry would receive from Maplewood residents only cemented his feelings. He needed to be out on patrol. He needed to be a cop. He needed to protect his people. Everything, everything uh, here at the time of my dispatch was, there are black kids here, there are black kids there, there's a black guy, everything, anything that had anything with any person of color was like, oh, they're suspicious. They're walking down the street, they're looking up driveways, they're looking in the cars, they're looking to steal something. Uh, for the few black families at the time that really lived in the community, there was a lot of, oh, they're playing that jungle music and it's too loud. And it, it, was, it was quite a problem. Police forces across the country were diversifying their workforce. American law enforcement was looking to actively recruit people from black and brown communities for the first time. And Larry and Mike were part of this movement. After two years as a dispatcher, Larry achieved his ambition and became a police officer. While he was in training, he was told something he still remembers vividly. I can recall um, a man who spoke with us while we were in a police academy him basically saying, you guys as police officers will have more power than the president of the United States. So we're like, what the hell? Like, what are you talking about? And basically, when you have that gun on your hip, your decision in a split second to take someone's life or not. And the president of the United States does not have that instant power the awesome responsibility that goes with that power and how easily it can be abused was about to hit home in the most horrific way. Larry and Mike would be faced with an event that defined the decade's racial politics and put their dual identities, black and blue, in the spotlight. I don't uh, want to... uh imply that this is a miscarriage of justice. Uh, this is the way our system works. These people are angry. They have every right to be. In 1991, footage of an African-American man being methodically, brutally assaulted by four white LA police officers went public. The 25-year-old man was Rodney King. In the 89-second video, he received 55 baton blows and six kicks to his body. The attack left him with a fractured skull and damage to his internal organs. Find the defendant, Stacey C. Kuhn, not guilty of the crime of assault by force likely to... But it wasn't the footage itself that prompted mass protests. A year after the incident, a nearly all-white jury acquitted the officers involved. It sends a bad message. It says it's okay to go ahead and beat somebody when they're down and kick the crap out of them, and it's okay... Anger over racism and police violence in South LA boiled over in uprisings that were even bigger and more devastating than the Newark Rebellion nearly 30 years earlier. For America's most image-conscious cities, the images were shocking. We're in a night out of control in the city of Los Angeles. We have a freeway that's been shut down. It was a night Los Angeles residents won't soon forget. The topics of race and policing were raised everywhere, from schools and homes to police departments and even communities. Maplewood was no different. The racial tension in Maplewood was off the charts. And the response of Mike and Larry's colleagues was shocking. You had white officers that thought, that, you know, just <laughs> the guy got what he deserved. And they had not a single problem with it. Like, shut up, boy, stay in line. 
Whilst what happened to Rodney King dominated news headlines and the consciousness of all Americans, for black Americans, the attack was haunting and traumatic, and Mike was left to deal with the fallout. It got so bad in town that both police departments, Maple and South Orange, we were sent into the high school for two days. So by the time school was over, we talked to every student in the school, and these kids were crying, they was arguing about how to treat us, and I'm thinking to myself, I said, this above our pay grade, like what's going on here, these kids are upset. I was questioned as to, you know, why, why would I be a cop? You know, why, why would a black man be a police officer? with this going on. Mike and Larry were out of their depth. These kids, black kids, in a majority white neighborhood, were hurting. You know, I'm like, don't they need a psychiatrist in the school? They don't need cops talking to them, you know? But in a way, they actually did. The case would completely destroy the way these black kids perceived white police officers. If things were bad before, they looked irreversible now. Kids would tell us that, you know, I have a problem, but I'm not going to go to a white cop and tell him anything. He's not going to help me. They felt strongly that these white cops would do little to nothing to help them if they had a problem, but had no problem approaching me and Mike. These kids wanted absolutely nothing to do with white police officers. Nothing. The trust was gone, non-existent. Faced with this new reality, Larry and Mike felt they had no choice but to double down. We have to start somewhere, and starting somewhere is we have to become police officers. You hope to level the playing field. I must have said to a hundred kids easily, I'm here to make a difference. I want to go back to that lesson that Larry was given at the academy, that police officers were more powerful than the President of the United States. But for Mike and Larry, there's a dissonance. Despite the power they had, they were made to feel powerless. And etched in Larry's memory is an early experience with one of his white colleagues. We're driving to a call. Um, some guy called, I, I don't remember exactly what he called for, but it was a white guy. We pull, I pull up, I'm driving. The guy's standing on my side of the car. When he goes to speak to us, he walks around the car to speak with the white police officer and not me. And it was the same story for Mike, too. It was almost like white people couldn't quite acknowledge them at all, resentful of their power. One particular occurrence, I we went, me and my, me and my partner, uh, Joe Guglielmo, he's Italian. Older lady, white lady, her alarm went off. And so we went to the house, we checked the windows and the doors and made sure everything was okay. And I told her, your house checks out fine, ma'am. You know, it's okay. She said, thank you so much. And I said, don't worry about it. You know, that's what we're here for. Glad you're safe. And she says, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the other officer. But it wasn't just the white residents who were resentful of Mike. The problem also existed much closer to home. The minorities in town were not happy to see me. While Mike was adjusting to his new job in Maplewood, the black residents were adjusting to him, and they let him know. It was more of a distrust of me being on that force to the black community wasn't welcoming. It was like, okay, how did this guy get this job? Some of the black residents who would see him in uniform 
would openly challenge him. They roll on their windows and they would ask, how did you get a job on Maple Police Department? And I would tell them, I dance well. And they, all the people understood that joke. Depending on your age, you understood that joke. It took me a minute to get it, to understand what Mike was saying in its entirety. A reference to the racial trope of the shuckin' and jivin' black man, performing and pleasing for white approval and power. The heat was coming from both sides. On the one hand, the white police establishment and white residents viewed Larry and Mike as a serious challenge to their status quo. And on the other, the black community disdained their existence. But the two officers were lucky enough to find someone who would help them understand what exactly their power could be. Someone completely inspirational. That's coming up. I, I tend to light up every time somebody mentions Ollie Jackson. I always knew the name was what we would consider a black name, Oliver Jackson. But I would see this guy and would never say, hey, that guy's black. He didn't look like a black guy at all. Ollie Jackson was, in fact, the first black police officer to work at Maplewood PD. Short, pudgy, light-skinned guy with straight hair. Ollie looked like he could have been Hawaiian, Samoan, or something like that. And I kid you not, it took me two years to realize this guy was actually African-American. This discovery was everything to Larry and Mike. There's another black cop at Maplewood PD. He took me under his wing. His, when I walked the beat, I would go to his parents' house for lunch on my break. When my car broke down, Ollie let me drive his extra car for like three weeks. He really paved way. We became really, 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 really good friends outside of the police department. Ollie Jackson was the one who looked out for Mike and Larry, the mentor, the father figure, the one who always had their back, on the good days and the bad. He was always there for them. And as the first black officer in Maplewood, back in the 70s, he went through hell. Guys would, would say and line up, well, I'm not riding with no nigger. He said he was spit on, people refused to work with him. He was sort of like an outcast. Even though Ollie didn't look black, he definitely didn't look white either. And based on how he's described, today he's what we'd call racially ambiguous, maybe even mixed. But one thing was clear. Ollie didn't belong. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have been Ollie Jackson. I couldn't have been that guy. You're not going to call me nigger. You're not going to spit on me. You're not going to mistreat me. Then that's just who I am. I don't know how he did it. But someone always has to be the first. It obviously took me a while to understand that he did it so that guys like me and Mikey and the minorities that came behind us could be in the positions they were in. So Ali made an incredible sacrifice. Like the Fathers and Larry's projects, Ali was a protector, looking out for his own. But being the first took its toll on him, like treading open water. When he could come up to take a breath, he would seek respite through an unexpected hobby. Everything bad, after he kept it to himself, he would get off work and he would go right to the Maplewood pool lot 
and he would race his cars. He would race his remote control cars around the pool lot. And I remember one night he said to me, what are you doing tonight? And I said, ah, I'm going to go home, probably hang out with my girlfriend. He says, um, you like remote control cars? And I said, yeah, those are great. The two agreed to meet in a swimming pool parking lot that night. I pull in his car, there, I roll up next to him. He pulls out this remote control car. He's got these four cones set up a distance apart. And he's riding this car around remotely with a remote control. So I instantly fall in love with it. Ollie needed his hobby. Because even though it's glorified and celebrated, the truth is, it's never easy being the first. The reality can be isolating and painful, suffering in silence behind the scenes. And after all that Ollie went through, after all these indignities, his police career ended unfairly and abruptly. Ollie was involved in a car chase where he got rammed and got hurt. Ollie was hit by a stolen car and was taken to hospital. He was out of work for a while because of his injuries. He was struggling. And in 1995, Ollie silently retired from Maplewood PD. But his resentment grew. When I say he was done with that place, he hated that place when he left. He didn't want to see anybody ever again. And in the years that followed, his health deteriorated. He had been in and out of the hospital a few times. And whatever the case may be, somehow last time he went to the hospital, he passed away. But before he passed away, he left his wife, Jeannie, with some clear instructions. The last thing he wanted were any Maplewood police officers going through the motions of paying their respects. And basically said to her, if I die, I don't want a funeral. Those people never liked me. Those people never cared for me. I don't want them grieving or, or standing around um, as much as even eating the food that we may pay for. According to Larry, Ollie told his wife that he didn't want a traditional officer's funeral. You know the image, stars and stripes draped over the coffin, pallbearers in uniform. Ollie never felt like he was part of that brotherhood, and that decision was final. He just wanted to be cremated. He didn't want a service at all. We tried calling Jeannie Jackson multiple times for this podcast, but we never got through to her. But Larry says Ollie left Maplewood PD with nothing but bad feelings, and he died without having a proper police officer's farewell. This didn't sit well with Mike, so he called Jeannie. And I said, listen, we're going to give something for him. So I called her up, and then I called the mayor, and then I called the police department, and we put something together to honor him properly and her with a plaque. And I had all the black police officers come out to recognize that we stand on this man's shoulders. This is why you guys are here, because of Ollie Jackson. Ollie's personal sacrifices inspired Mike and Larry to believe that a new type of policing was possible. But according to them, there was one man who felt very differently. A man Mike and Larry say was dead set on maintaining the traditional police culture and everything that it entailed. That man was Robert Semino. Semino, uh, wow. That, that's, that's a whole nother story.
Robert Semino was the chief of police at Maplewood PD. He was like the golden boy of the police department, like the, all the bosses in the town, they really loved him. So he was like a real light guy on a police department. But as a boss, even as a sergeant, pretty much everyone hated him. He was in pretty decent shape. He was, he was a runner, a uh, clean-shaven type dude. I think he was in his uh, early 30s at the time, probably like 5'10", 185, 190 pounds. He always had really nice watches. That's about as far as I can go as his appearance, uh, describing him, period. And as for his attitude... If he liked you, he liked you. If he didn't, you knew. He would go out of his way to make sure you knew who was in charge. Semino was a sergeant when Mike first arrived in Maplewood, but he climbed the ranks and became the chief of police. He was a man in a hurry. According to Mike, he was a micromanager who spent every waking hour in the police station, at least 16 or 17 hours a day. And when it came to his interactions with the black officers, Larry's view is clear. From my personal dealings, I would have absolutely no problem saying that he had a race problem. According to Larry and Mike, Semino was an old-school police officer with an authoritarian style. They say he liked a lot of tickets being issued and lots of stop and frisks. Michael just didn't see eye to eye with his boss. Me and the chief police are like oil and water. The way Mike saw things, it was the old guard versus the new. The past up against the future. Under his leadership, that was the culture of Maplewood Police Department. If you wanted an assignment, right, he would check to see how many arrests you're making. If you wanted to be a detective, he would check to see how many tickets you're writing. As long as you're making arrests with Chief Semino, he's happy. But Larry and Mike weren't happy. To them, it was obvious he would be targeted with tickets and stopped for petty violations, and who wouldn't? Who was held accountable and who wasn't? By Mike and Larry's reckoning, there was a stark difference between how white kids in Maplewood were treated compared to the black kids in town. To Mike and Larry, it was black and white, literally. I'll just say it, whereas, you know, how they were handling the white kids, oh, no big deal, just go home. Well, the black kids were trying to, we're arresting and we're signing complaints against. That was wrong. I, I, I just wanted some, some, wanted it to be equal. I wanted us to be treated like they were being treated. But to Mike and Larry, it seemed that wasn't the case. And it was clear to Larry, one night in particular, there were a group of white kids who, on a Friday night, decided they, they somehow understood that there was a, a black guy who lived in a community who had a pool. And somehow they found out that the guy had gone away on vacation. And this group of white kids decided that this was the perfect time to have a party in this guy's backyard. The party was reported to the police via dispatch. Larry headed over. Larry says when he arrived, there were 22 or 23 white kids there with a lot of alcohol. Some kids are drunk, some kids are vomiting just in the guy's backyard, but they just made a complete mess out of it. The way Larry describes it, it sounds like chaos. To him, these kids had broken the law, so he arrested them. He charged them with criminal trespassing and underage drinking. Then he took them to the station. But that's where he says he was met with an even bigger problem. The parents decided that they're going to come to the police headquarters and they're going to make a big deal of it. They decided to come to Maplewood and, and um, meet with Samino one night. And Chief Samino invited Larry to the meeting. 
I walk in and there's about 10, 15 parents, all white, him, they're sitting there. And it's sort of like a me against them type thing. And he seemed to be a part of them. That feeling of brotherhood that the blue uniforms are meant to represent, well, to Larry, that night, it was definitely not there. One lady said to me, where do you get off charging our kids? Who the hell do you think you are? And just very disrespectful. Larry felt he was being tested. He was not going to take this. So I immediately addressed her. Ma'am, you're not going to talk to me like that. I don't know who the hell you think you are. I'm not that guy. But there was more. Another lady said to me, well, this is a classic case of reverse discrimination. At this point, Larry lost his composure. And excuse my French, but I said to her, I said, ma'am, what in the fuck is reverse discrimination? Larry saw that as meaning he was being accused of arresting these kids because they're white, that he treated them unfairly and unjustly. And as all of this was happening, he says Chief Semino didn't say a word. Larry felt alone in his corner of the ring, fighting his own fight. And he never, never, never defended me. And a couple of days later, Larry says Semino suggested that he adjust the charges against the kids. Larry refused. Then he says he was taken off the case and the charges mysteriously disappeared. I contacted Robert Semino to ask him about what happened. He didn't respond to my request for a comment. But to Larry, this incident illustrated all that was wrong about Semino's administration. Nevertheless, Larry was doing well, working on the front line as a juvenile detective, making a difference to the lives of the black kids in Maplewood. I did this juvenile detective thing, and I had gotten really good at it. I was doing some things and protecting the youth, the African-Americans in, in Maplewood like you wouldn't believe. Larry loved what he did. He was attached to his kids, a father figure to many of them, especially the young black boys. The way he saw it, the youth in Maplewood were his responsibility. But in a way, it seems Larry was too good. He was making too much of a difference. And one day, he was approached to take an exam to become a sergeant. A supervising role, a promotion, but one which would take him away from the kids. At that point, he remembered some wise words of advice Ollie Jackson, Maplewood's first black cop, had given him. And he said, sit down, Larry. I sat down, and here we go again with the fatherly advice. What Ollie said to Larry would stay with him for the rest of his career. There's more and more black kids up here now. They're going to depend on you to do the right thing. You need to always do the right thing. And you may want to sacrifice your career and put them first ahead of you like I did. So when the seniors asked him to apply for the promotion, which would take him away from the kids who needed him the most, he decided it was time to heed Ollie's words. My sacrifice was not becoming a sergeant and staying there. It sounds like based on everything that you just said, it's almost like you are protecting these young men from the system. Is that a fair assumption? That is absolutely fair to say. So then, in your opinion, from the perspective of your seniors, why do you think you were offered the job as a road sergeant? My personal opinion is they, they more or less wanted me out of that office. 
I got in touch with both Samino and Maplewood Police Department to ask for their response to these allegations. The former chief didn't respond, and the police department declined to comment. But as for Larry, he didn't leave. He stayed in Maplewood. He stayed true to his word, keeping his relationship with the youth of Maplewood, speaking with the kids, getting to know their parents, working around the clock. Larry poured his heart and soul into these kids. I would go out on the road and I would meet these kids in places that, you know, weren't so popular and just simply talk to them. Not at them, not as, you know, I'm more important than you, I'm above you. Just talk to them on their level. Years passed and Larry kept working with the kids. In the late 90s, he was part of drug resistance and gang resistance programs that originally came out of L.A. Your gang problems all started in California. And then it spilled all across the country. The same gang problems that Tony Henson, Mike's childhood friend from the last episode, thought would never come to New Jersey. So the programs were needed in Maplewood. And for years, Larry went into schools in the district to speak to students about being smart and staying away from crime. In fact, Larry stayed working with the youth of Maplewood up until his retirement in 2014. Even when other opportunities came up, He stayed. At one point, he was thinking of leaving Maplewood PD altogether and working for the prosecutor's office. But he couldn't abandon the kids. I recall talking to my wife, saying to her, plain and simple, if I leave, then what? What happens to them? I'm not sure if it was ever his intention, but Larry ended up embodying the fathers who patrolled his projects when he was a kid. He was a protector, policing his own community. When I spoke with him about this, the comparison surprised him. He'd never seen it like that. But he did respond. In many cases, a lot of the African-American kids didn't have fathers living in the house or, you know, involved in their lives. And I kind of took that role, I guess. That's what it did, take them in or try to put them under my wing and protect them when I could protect them and help them and give them that kick in the butt to get their head on straight. So, (laughs) wow, you pointing that out. Yeah, I guess there is a similarity there. Those hours, days, weeks, years Larry put into black kids in Maplewood, they seemed to have some real impact. I took up photography and I shoot uh, semi-pro football, American football. And I'm at a game and I hear someone yell out, Detective Washington. And then I hear another voice yell out, Detective Washington. And I'm thinking, okay, there can't be many people who know me as Detective Washington in this world. And believe it or not, two of the guys or three of the kids on this team, now they're grown men, and they still remembered me as teaching them. It was, I mean, we we hugged, we embraced, because I hadn't seen these guys in years. It was, it was, it was touching, let's just say. So apparently I did something right. I had some impact somewhere on some of these kids. Next time on Black and Blue. A black boy reaches breaking point and snaps. I don't trust cops. I'm never going to trust cops because of that situation. Because how can you go from shaking our hands in the hallway to body slamming us on the floor? You've 
been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizzeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizzell. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizzell. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dile Velasquez and Chris Duncombe.